Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Today we're here with Jo Flat. She's a program director at Evergreen. It's uh, based in Toronto, Canada. Um, looking at all things uh, urban, sustainability, resilience, all that kind of great stuff. She's worked a lot on mid-sized cities, but she's just recently been promoted to, to look at a lot of different other things. Um, and I have to admit, I know Joe from a long time ago. She was an intern at our company, ES Global uh, Consulting in Mexico. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that later. She's got a BA uh, from McGill University and a master's in public policy from the University of Toronto. She's here today to tell us a bit about what Evergreen uh, does and some initiatives in urban development. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is fantastic. It, it was fun catching up just a bit. <laughs> How long ago was it that you worked, that you came down to Mexico to intern with us? Oh gosh, um, 10, no, more than 10 years. Really? I think so. Oh my gosh. Well, you, you've, you know, you've been, you're so accomplished since that time. I'd like to take credit for it, but uh, obviously we can't. Let's start with a big question. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. The big, the big question is this. If you look at movies, if you look at, you know, popular uh, visions of what might be for cities in the future, you, you kind of get this polarized view. You get the apocalyptic Blade Runner or you get this futuristic uh you know, zero traffic, incredibly mixed income housing, intergenerational housing, growing sustainable food, green cities, no sprawls. Where are we with all this and, and where do you think we're going? Yeah, I think we're actually at an incredibly important moment. That we'll decide which direction we head in a little bit. So we have the knowledge, the power, the skills, the technology make a lot of really smart uh, investments in achieving a sustainable, livable, inclusive future. Um, and we also have the potential to ignore all of those things or leverage them and use them in bad ways to take us to a future that we don't necessarily want to be moving in. So in the Canadian context, uh, we, our federal government recently launched, or in 2017 launched, a national challenge called the Smart Cities Challenge. And what was really interesting about this is that it, it actually facilitated municipalities of all sizes from you know, tiny, tiny communities to our largest cities in Canada to start moving on smart and integration of technology into cities and understanding how that could work. Now, that's a, that's a huge change and a huge catalyst for our communities. And it, and it kind of begs the question and highlights the importance of us needing to get in front of large corporate power in the area of data and technology because it's coming fast, it's coming hard. And for those who aren't familiar with Sidewalk Labs in Toronto, also that company, they're working at the intersection of urban planning and design and technology. And so they actually are in the position right now, you know, waiting on a few sort of fundamental things to land, but to essentially create an experimental neighborhood that would put technology at the heart of that community. And so 
the way that that's happened and unfolded in Canada has actually been quite problematic in a lot of ways, even though the ambition might be aligned. There's some, some big questions that are coming up for us and we're realizing, oh no, we're not quite prepared to handle this <laughs> sort of change and this dramatic um, opportunity. Well, it seems to me by, you know, I know enough about urban development and sustainability to, you know, be dangerous. You know, I shoot myself in the foot quite periodically, uh, pretending I know something. But I was reading in Evergreen, you know, you've got these, uh, like, these things that I thought were really great. Collaboration, innovation, accountability, systems approach. Now, when you talk about technology, I mean, that seems to be like, one part, maybe not even the most important part of how you develop a urban setting sustainably. Yeah, no, I think it's it's just sort of an external context that we're all operating inside of. But to actually get to the nuts and bolts of what makes a good city in terms of its of its fabric and how we design and how we plan and how we work collaboratively as as community members working with with our leaders and things like that, I think that is also ultimately where a lot of that control and power exists and how we leverage technology as opposed to how it it impacts us. Well, I, I, I want to come back quickly to something I read in, your, in Evergreen's um, website, but uh, just quickly, let's backtrack. You, you talked about these huge tech companies uh, having vested interests, I, I guess, or I'm assuming vested interests in the sense that they want to push things their own way or maybe not go the way which might be best for urban uh, sustainable development. But you see that not just in technology, and I think that that, I don't know if you had any thoughts about all the vested interests. We see the stories in big oil, big meat, you know, big energy, all these things seem to be pushing us the wrong way. How do we get them, these vested interests, to start going the right way? What's Have you had experience at the urban scene? That's a really great question. So I think it's a bit of an all-hands-on-deck approach. When we think about how we can take control over a lot of the factors that influence and drive us. So from a regulatory side, from a, you know, the, the role of the public sector in mandating and requiring and putting forward policies that ensure that these big corporate entities can sort of fall in line with the interests of communities. And then on the community side, I think remembering that we always have power in our dollar and that getting out and being loud and making noises and reaching out to the people who represent us is a really critical way to also change the way that things are going to go. Yeah. I think, from, you know, from a microcosm in, in Toronto, Walmart was, was had plans to move into a neighborhood that really prioritizes local businesses. It's called Kensington Market. Um, and the community rose up and really leveraged all of their resources to make sure that Walmart didn't come into their community because they didn't think it worked with what they were trying to achieve. Sorry, I mean, Kensington Market? <laughs> a Walmart there? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Kensington Market, for those of you who might not know about it, is Toronto's longest-lived, or at least one of its longest-lived, vibrant and diverse neighborhood markets. It's full of small shops, even has its own uh, local brew. That That is hubris. Exactly. And well, I think that's a big thing with these corporations, is that they come with a hubris and an interest um, that sometimes is intended to, in many ways, trump what the actual community is looking to have. Well, I mean, we've seen tons of examples of that throughout the world, not just in Canada and the United States. But um, and I, I wanted to sorry I interrupted you. I wanted to remind listeners that you also have a master's in public policy from the University of Toronto. So I guess that kind of informs some of the ways uh, you think and some of the ways, obviously, that Evergreen thinks. It, it, can public policy tackle some of these vested interest challenges? 
I definitely think it can. Um, you know, right now at a national scale, we're looking at our privacy policy at a provincial level, and this is in the technology realm, of course. We're looking right. at we're looking at uh, data, our data strategy. At a municipal level, we have control over what Uber is allowed to do, what Airbnb is allowed to do, and a lot of these other institutions. Um, I also teach at the University of Toronto at the Monk School, and I actually teach students who are aspiring bureaucrats for the most part, how to change government from outside of government, and how you can actually be leveraging and harnessing the powers that be and the policies that are on the table to really ensure that your communities are created, designed, and developed in the ways that you want them to be advancing. Well, that, that's, that's interesting, and it's a nice segue to this question that I was gonna ask you earlier. On your website at Evergreen, I saw this, the idea of, I guess it's called thick networks in placemaking. That sounds all really great. What does that mean to, to you know, my dad or to uh, somebody, you know, in a mid-sized city in Canada? I, I think that speaks to the importance of social capital and connectedness and recognizing that the more you work cross across sectors and in collaboration to to strengthen the networks and the number of people who are putting their energy and interest into something the better it will ultimately be and so there's a big push across evergreen to think about different strategies for engagement but not just official levels of engagement engagement but actual problem definition and identification and solutions development processes that are co-owned by municipalities and by communities community input is is vastly important when it comes to urban development and sustainability and i want to come back to a few examples of of that let's just take a short break speaking with joe flat she's an urban sustainability development expert with evergreen out of toronto in canada I'm going to play a little bit of music from Jeremy Dutcher. Uh, he's from New Brunswick, of all places. He's an operatic tenor, blending First Nation roots and classical music. Hope you enjoy. Oh, 
welcome back with Joe Flat from Evergreen. We've been talking about uh, urban design and sustainability. I hope you enjoyed the music of Jeremy Dutcher from uh, New Brunswick. Look him up and listen to him. Support all great artists. This is fantastic stuff. Joe, uh, we've been talking about all things sustainable and urban design, and we talked a lot about processes stuff, and, and you did use a few words that maybe some people don't quite understand. So let's, let's just take two or three examples, okay? Two or three examples on the ground of things that you have found in your experience and communities have found in their experiences uh, that really, really work to make change, that have some kind of viral effect not only on the projects that they're doing, but within their urban areas in, in um, catalyzing, uh, your word, catalyzing more and, and better uh, projects and activities for a happier and healthier urban setting. Yeah, so I can speak to a specific opportunity in Toronto in the, in the world of housing. So uh, some of you out there might be familiar with detached accessory dwellings or laneway houses or alley houses. Uh, in Toronto, we have a certain typology where a lot of our houses are built on these laneways. And for many, many years, uh, it was just not on the table for any of the garages that are built on those lanes to be converted into houses. Council didn't want to deal with it. It was decided that it was too complicated. However, Toronto and many, like many other cities across the world are in a bit of a housing crisis. We have a shortage of rental stock and it's very hard to be able to afford to purchase a new home. And so we saw an opportunity to unlock all of these garages that are situated on laneways to actually build, build livable units. Um, and so what we did is we created a collaborative group, which was led by myself on the evergreen side. So that's the nonprofit voice. We had a team of experts in the actual design development and planning sphere. And then we had two local counselors from the city who all banded together to say, we need to unlock this problem and change the policy that would ultimately enable laneway houses to go forward. Um, and a critical component of being able to drive that is that we harness the energy and the enthusiasm in the community. And so we engaged over 4,000 people from across the city through in-person consultations and surveys to really tell us what this policy should look like and to demonstrate to the city that action needed to be taken. And we also worked with the city to sort of say, this isn't a question of whether we should or should not, it's a question of how, and brought all of the different departments together to come up with new and innovative solutions to actually allow the policy to move forward. And ultimately, we were successful. And so now in the city of Toronto, you can build a laneway house in the downtown area. Do, do you know how many houses that's actually... Uh resulted in or do they keep that keep track of that are they accountable for that uh we're actually in the process of tabulating that number um and we're in september when it's been a year from the release we'll be oh, okay. that across the city yeah my, my my wife and i we own a house in boston a three-partment uh, house in boston and we got a falling down garage and we'd love to put that into uh you know like a carriage house or a granny flat or you call them laneway houses there's no lane in our our place but uh, What's so complex about this? <laughs> you mean from a city side? <laughs> well, it just seems like such an obvious thing to do, right? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, at, the, at first glance, it seems quite complicated. Would you sell off the piece of land? How would you service the piece of land? Does that maintain the character of that neighborhood? You know, the expression nimbius, not in my yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's yeah. a very easy thing for people in certain neighborhoods who don't want change to say, I don't want this change. And then at a city level, it crosses a lot of different lines. It includes waste, it includes water, it includes fire. And sometimes those complex policy issues that touch on a lot of different departments can just be very slow to move forward because no one has their own 
own self-interest to really make it happen. <laughs> so you have, you have to find a mayor that wants to develop his backyard into a laneway house, essentially. Yes, finding the champion, <laughs> the political champion is always critical to these processes. Who are these crazy dames that I saw in your... Crazy games. So we worked with them to deliver the consultation program. And so they use art as part of that work. And so we actually brought, um, use clay as a way for people to design what their ideal laneway and laneway house could look like. And, and that worked. And it worked. Uh, we also use tours. And so when I think about engagement and participatory processes, we like to think about how can you really help people understand so they feel empowered to inform and engage and consult and influence. So these kind of thick networks that you're talking about are also process, not just outcome. Mm-hmm, definitely. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, I got one special question uh, I want to ask you, but I, I, can you, before you do that, before I do that, could you just give me one last little, uh, you know, example, maybe from a small city or a mid-sized city, because I know Canada and the United States are dotted with these small cities that have special kinds of challenges that a big hub like Toronto really doesn't have. Yeah, so I mean, I'm a, I am a lover of all mid-sized cities. In the Canadian context, we describe those as between 50,000 and 500,000 in population. And for the most part, you know, those are following different growth patterns and big cities are, of course, um, they're having a harder time retaining youth. A lot of them are Rust Belt cities and so have gone through a lot of economic restructuring. So that's, you know, changed what used to be car manufacturing based is now maybe shifting towards tech. And that's obviously having an impact on the local economy. And in many instances, from an urban planning perspective, the downtowns have maybe hollowed out or people have left in favor of the suburbs and the big box stores have also drawn people away from commercial activity in the downtown. So a lot of mid-sized cities are struggling with that kind of growth and energy and vibrancy that some of our big, sides, big cities have been able to maintain. Um, and so, you know, a cornerstone, that thing that we talked about with the mid-sized cities program is, you know, what are the soft economic development strategies that can help bring life and attention and community vibrancy back to these places that maybe otherwise aren't as desirable. And so we were leading a national program in communities all across Canada for those that were interested in participating called 101 Day. Hmm. So this, this initiative started in Bogota, Colombia, uh, really with an interest to say, hey, we're the community. We want to enact the change we want to see in our cities. And so on one day, they tried to organize a hundred different activities of people across the city enacting that change. Wow. That is cool. And yeah. so but how do they do that? I mean, they get the mayors, the councillors, or in, uh, nonprofits, or it's just... actually not about the political leaders. It's all about the community residents, sort of doing DIY guerrilla oh. tactics on a single day. Spontaneous activity. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that, is, that is fantastic. Listen, here's my special question, and this is a personal request. Do you have? Uh, do you have your recipe for vegan scones? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> because I think everybody in the world should have that recipe. And I think they should make it at least twice a week. My wife <laughs> will not stop talking. She said, you're going to interview Hugh? Who? And I said, Joe Flat. And she says, I want the scones. She didn't even nanosecond. I want the scones recipe. Uh, okay, I'm putting it on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to hold you to that, uh, and, and at one point I'm going to put it on my website so people can can enjoy the great pleasure of your vegan scones. Uh, listen, Joe, this has been fantastic catching up with you. It's been fantastic uh, 
learning all about your experiences and experience of Evergreen. And I just really want to thank you so much for all you've done, not just for this podcast, but for in your career for all things sustainable. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, more people like Joe Flat from Evergreen. She's a program director there. More people like her and the world will be a better place. So thank you for tuning in. You can get a hold of uh, Evergreen at uh, evergreen.ca uh, or on Twitter at Evergreen Canada. And if Joe, if you want to talk to Joe or see what she's been tweeting out every now and then, at Joe Flat. that's J-O-F-L-A-T-T. That's on Twitter. Don't forget to check out the sustainablecentury.net for all our blogs, uh, videos, and, and of course podcasts with people like Joe and many, many others. Look forward next week to Daniel Moss. He's the director of agroecology, and we're going to talk about how agriculture and ecology can help one another out. Thanks again for listening.